What difference does God's presence make? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, all at once. The psalmist reflects this reality in some famous verses from Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And by saying that, the psalmist acknowledges that God is everywhere, from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the grave. God confirms this and says of himself in Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24, Am I a God at hand, declares Yahweh, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares Yahweh? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares Yahweh? Surely these passages clearly indicate that God is everywhere. So what's so special about God coming to live with Israel in a tent? Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40, the final chapter of the book of Exodus. And as you're turning there, by the way, the image that you can kind of see in the background of the slides this morning is an artist's rendering of the Jewish high priest inside the holy place of the tabernacle, preparing to enter the most holy place through the curtain to make atonement for the people of Israel. The book of Exodus tells the story of how God selected preserved and empowered Moses to be the leader of God's people so that through him God would rescue his people from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God provided for his people in the wilderness and brought them to himself at Mount Sinai in order to cut a covenant with the people of Israel. Those people broke that covenant immediately after it was formally established. God then extended inconceivable mercy to his people. And all along the way, God revealed himself intimately to Moses. To understand the significance of the conclusion of the book of Exodus, we need to back up just a bit and pick up the last paragraph of chapter 39. Chapters 25 to 31 provided the detailed instructions for how the people were to build the tabernacle. Chapters 32 to 34 narrated the idolatry of the people, Moses' intercession and Yahweh's mercy to the people. And chapters 35 to 39 narrate the actual building of the tabernacle. So look with me at Exodus 39, 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. So they did. Then for the next nine verses, we read the specific parts that the people brought to Moses. Now look at verses 42 and 43. According to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As Yahweh had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Now, why is this important? This paragraph emphasizes the obedience of his people. This is in contrast with their idolatry from Exodus 32. This detailed explanation is probably intended to portray the people's repentance. They are now turning to obey Yahweh. The first eight verses of Exodus 40 then opens with Yahweh giving more instructions to Moses for how and when he is to set up the tabernacle and all of its furniture, as well as Aaron and his sons for their priestly duties. Then we read in verse 16, Exodus 40, 16, This Moses did, 
according to all that Yahweh had commanded him, so he did. Verse 17 actually probably should begin the next paragraph, even though most Bible translations start the paragraph with verse 16. The paragraph from verses 17 to 33 narrates Moses setting up the tabernacle. And seven times in that paragraph, we read the phrase, as Yahweh had commanded Moses, emphasizing the precise and complete accomplishment of God's will by Moses. This heavy emphasis on the people's actual obedience is a marked shift in the book of Exodus. In chapters 39 and 40, the phrase, as Yahweh had commanded, appears 17 times, whereas in the first 38 chapters of the book, it only appears three times. Now we come to the final paragraph of the book. Though we know the story continues into Leviticus and on through Numbers and Deuteronomy, this final paragraph provides a fitting conclusion to the book of Exodus. The whole book of Exodus has been about Yahweh beginning to fulfill His promises to Abraham, recorded back in Genesis. Yahweh has come to rescue His people and bring them to Himself so that He would be their God and they would be His people. Let's read this last paragraph and make some observations. Look at Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. In Exodus 32 to 34, because of the idolatry of the people, because of their breach of the covenant, there was some significant concern that Yahweh would abandon his bride. But in connection with Moses' intercession, Yahweh indicated that he would remain with the people, and he finished cutting the covenant he had started back in chapter 19 mercifully passing over their betrayal. As a side note, we should probably observe that the golden calf incident didn't throw off God's plans. Yahweh announced back in Exodus 25 that He was going to dwell with the people in the tabernacle. They would build according to His specifications. Chapters 32 to 34, depicting both the horror of the people's betrayal and the wonder of God's mercy find their rightful place under God's sovereignty, and ultimately as one of the most stunning revelations of God's character in all of Scripture. And just as he announced back in chapter 25, here in chapter 40, we read that the tabernacle has been constructed and set up, and he is coming to dwell with his people. Thus, as commentator Alec Matier puts it, golden calf or no golden calf, his plans of grace need no adjustment. The incident of the golden calf had its place and purpose. In these final verses, we get to see Yahweh showing up in a magnificent display. The cloud is presumably the same cloud that has been leading them through the wilderness to this point, but now it gets up close and personal. The cloud descends on the tent, and Yahweh's glory fills the tent in such a way that even Moses cannot enter. Now, when a narrator repeats something... We readers ought to pay attention. 
Notice that the narrator writes, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle at the end of verse 34 and again at the end of verse 35. That probably means this is the important part. Perhaps you'll recall that earlier in the story, Moses was allowed to see the backside of God's glory in some mysterious way. That was way back in Exodus 34. Why is he here prevented from drawing near? The text says Moses was not able to enter the tent. Why not? After all, hadn't Moses just had his hands all over the tent? Didn't he just set it up himself? Why is he not allowed to enter now? Let me quote commentator Douglas Stewart. The answer is that the tabernacle was now Yahweh's house and no one else's. It was, now, it was no more appropriate now for Moses to enter the tabernacle, even though he had been all through it as its building supervisor, than it would be for a house builder in modern times to retain a key and enter at will a house that he had built once it was sold to its occupying owner. Moses cannot enter on his own initiative. He must be summoned, invited by God. And the book of Leviticus begins with Yahweh calling Moses from the tent. It was true for Moses, and it is no less true for us today. Meeting with God can happen only by His invitation and His initiation. We do not approach God on our own initiative or on our own terms. We are not landlords who can write up a lease that defines how God may live with us. No, God is the great landlord, or perhaps we should better say He's the Lord of the land, and not only the land of Israel. The only true God who appears here in the midst of an unapproachable cloud is Lord of all the earth. He defines how sinners may live with him. The last few verses of the book of Exodus summarize how Yahweh would guide the people throughout all their journeys. Back in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses had expressed his concern that Yahweh might not go with them. And in the face of their idolatrous breach of the covenant, we should be overwhelmed at the gracious words of Exodus 34, 10. Behold, I am making a covenant. Yahweh is still intent to cut this covenant with this stiff-necked people. He reiterates his promises to drive out the people of the land and give it to them, to the Israelites. And here at the end of the book, we get a summary of how he would lead the people through the wilderness. Whenever God would move the cloud off the tabernacle, the people were to pack up camp and begin moving. Whenever the clouds settled down on the tabernacle, they were to set up camp and remain until the cloud moved again. This same description will be repeated in the book of Numbers as they actually begin their trek from Mount Sinai. And so ends the book of Exodus. The main character of the book is not Moses, nor is it the nation of Israel. No, the main character of the book of Exodus is Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, as he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Yahweh is not like Egyptian gods or the idols of the nations, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, 
They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat, to borrow the language of the psalmist in Psalm 115. No, Yahweh is a God who speaks, a God who is mighty to save. To quote Moses from his sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 4, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Even the Exodus itself is only a part of the main plot line of the book of Exodus. The book really is about the one true God, Lord of all the earth, rescuing His people, establishing them as His special possession, and coming to live with them. God with us. Emmanuel. We've begun celebrating the season of Advent, the season of Christmas. And during, the time, during this time, we tend to think of Jesus, particularly as Emmanuel, a name given to Him prophetically through the prophet Isaiah, which was intended to identify this child as a sign of God's presence with His people. But Jesus was more than just a sign of God's presence with His people. He was God's presence with His people, embodied, enfleshed, incarnated. We could see the whole Bible as the story of God establishing His presence with His people in His place. In Genesis 2, God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of the book of Exodus, we see the glory of Yahweh filling the tabernacle, and we see the presence of Yahweh in the tabernacle as Emmanuel, God with us. Later, the same glory will fill Solomon's temple, and we would wonder, uh, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. God's glory filled the temple in Jerusalem. That's Emmanuel, God with us. Tragically, in the book of Ezekiel, we read about God's glory leaving the temple. And we wonder if Yahweh has finally abandoned his stiff-necked people. But no, the story of Emmanuel continues. John 1.14 explains, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. John tells us that this Word is the fully divine Word who has become the man, Jesus. He dwelt among us. He pitched His tent among us. He tabernacled among us. Oh, the splendor of Emmanuel, God's glory with a face, a human face. How could it get better than this? But it does get better. As wondrous as the story of Emmanuel is, as excellent as it is to reflect on the reality that the king of the universe wants to live with tiny, insignificant, sinful human beings. And he accomplishes this especially by becoming a human being. This is not the end of the story. The presence of God with his people in the tabernacle foreshadows the presence of God with His people in Jesus. But it also foreshadows something else. God didn't want only to dwell with His people. He wanted to dwell in His people. 
Jesus even told his disciples that it was good for them that he would leave them. Can you imagine their jaws dropping? The quizzical looks on their faces, the blank stares. I'm not making this up. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, listen to how Jesus explains that this is good for them and ultimately for us too. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why is this such a great thing? Well, Jesus already told them back in John 14, 16 to 17. He said, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We could get bogged down unpacking the meaning of the word here translated helper, but we won't take the time right now to do that. But notice that he's talking about the same person as we read about in chapter 16, verse 7, where Jesus said he would send this helper. Here, Jesus says the Father will give them this helper. Now, who is it? John 14, 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. This helper is the Spirit of truth, also known as the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them that the world, meaning those who are not disciples of Jesus, cannot receive the Holy Spirit because they don't see the Spirit and they don't know the Spirit. But these disciples do know the Spirit. He goes on, You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. That very simple sentence is packed with rich truth. The disciples who were following Jesus during his ministry, knew the Spirit. How did they know the Spirit? Because the Spirit remained with them. He was with them as they followed Jesus. He accompanied them. He empowered them to teach the truth, to cast out demons, and to heal people. And at least once in a while, he enabled these disciples to understand what Jesus taught them. He was with them. This was true of God's people in the Old Testament as well. Those who remained faithful to God, those who did not run after idols, those who did not try to obey the law in order to manipulate God into blessing them, those who trusted God's word, the Spirit was with them. But the Spirit was not in them. In the Old Testament, God was present on Mount Sinai. Then He was present in the tabernacle. And then He was present in the temple. But He was never present in the people. The Mosaic Covenant did not provide a relationship with God that was interior. The Mosaic Covenant did not provide a relationship between God and His people that was internal or interior. Yes, God had come near to His people. Yes, God was dwelling with His people. Yes, God sought to dwell intimately with His people. But the provisions and stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant were never sufficient in and of themselves to connect God with His people internally and permanently. A better covenant was needed. So a better covenant was promised. A better covenant that was always a part of God's plan. These earlier covenants were all pointing ahead of themselves. They were always pointing forward. God's actions in earlier parts of history were also pointing forward down the line in history to the greater things He would do 
to secure His permanent presence, not only with His people, but also in His people. When Yahweh promised to restore the people of Israel out of exile, He promised to put His Spirit within them. In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, we read, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When you put together the announcements of restoration in the prophetic literature, you find that they are deeply connected to the new covenant. And the new covenant abundantly surpasses the Mosaic covenant. And Jesus enacted this new covenant through His sacrificial death on the cross. To enter this covenant relationship with God, sinners must trust Jesus personally. And we find Jesus in John 14 explaining to His disciples why Emmanuel is not as good as it gets. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But as a man with flesh and blood and bones, he is localized. He is certainly the embodiment of God's presence. And the disciples got to walk around with him. And so did lots of other folks during his earthly life. But he was only here for about 33 years. He was only with the disciples for about three years. He hardly traveled outside the little land of Israel. Even after he rose from the dead, he only appeared to certain folks at certain times. And as far as we can tell, he primarily appeared only to folks who already knew him. Jesus remains embodied forever. After the resurrection, he retained a human body, a glorified body, no longer suffering from the effects of this broken world, but a human body nonetheless. Where is Christ now? Colossians 3.1 tells us He is seated at the right hand of God. He is not floating around ethereally, mystically moving in and out of the world. We do expect Him to return someday. He will return, but it won't be invisibly. It won't be quietly, and it will be bodily. But in the meantime, we live in God's presence. Better than that, God's presence lives in us. If you're a Christian today, the Spirit of God lives inside you. You cannot be a Christian if that is not true of you. Paul writes quite clearly in Romans 8, verses 9 to 11, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. God in us is better than God with us. But why? What difference does it really make? What difference should it make for your everyday life to know that God is living in you? Before we look at some answers to that question, let me say a word to those of you who might not know Jesus. 
who might not have the Spirit living in you. You need to know that what I am about to say does not apply to you. You need to know that I'm saying this not to exclude you. I'm not saying this to make you feel like you're out of place. I want you to know this because the truths that I'm about to call attention to are beautiful realities. And you can experience these things too. I want you to listen extra carefully. Whatever you may think about Jesus or church or religion or God, in the next few minutes you need to hear that God is real. He has actually changed our lives by coming to live in us. Being a Christian is not primarily about what we do on Sunday mornings. Being a Christian means that we see Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Don't let that be a trite phrase to you. Jesus claimed to be the only way to have a meaningful life in this world, as well as the only way to have a relationship with God. The way that Jesus lived his life is the way he wants us to live our lives. The way he lived his life is the only way to please God. Jesus speaks only truth. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows what it means to be human. He knows how it feels to suffer. He really can relate to you better than anyone else in this room or anyone else in your family or anyone else in your life. He knows what you truly need better than you do. He is the great provider. He cares for you. Following Jesus is the only way to live the good life in this world. Following Jesus is not just about the words that you repeat, songs that you sing, or things you say you believe. Following Jesus is about seeing Jesus as He really is, the God who sacrificed Himself for ungodly people so that He could bring those ungodly people to God and transform them into godly people who please God. So, listen to what a difference having the Spirit of Christ living in you can make. I'm going to give you seven reasons. Number one, you are never alone. God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple was not necessarily permanent. We mentioned how Ezekiel saw a vision of God departing the temple because of the sinfulness of the people. For Christians, even though we still sin, the Spirit never leaves us, not for a moment. God created human beings for relationships, both a relationship with Him and a relationship with other people. Yet, we all know the pain of loneliness. And sometimes we feel lonely, even in a room full of people. One reason for that might be that we, in that moment, are forgetting who we are. I am a child of God, and God lives in me. He enjoys dwelling in me, helping me trust Him, helping me obey Him every day. You are never alone. Number two, the Spirit is active in you. God is not only in you, but He is for you. The Spirit is working in your heart and in your life every day. Remember that promise from Ezekiel 36, 27? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and 
be careful to obey my rules. God promised to cause us to obey. We speak positively of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and we need to remember that Paul's referring to the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. Whenever we express love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we have the Spirit to thank for that. Negatively, we can think of ways that we've overcome sinful patterns or resisted temptation in a given moment. How did we do that? Paul attributes that, too, to the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, the sin in our life, according to Romans 8.13. So the Spirit is active in you, enabling you to live a godly life. He's not just sitting around as an idle observer. God's permanent, active presence in you can also guard you from fear, remembering that God is not just up in heaven watching things unfold in your life, but that He's in you with all His divine power can give you confidence to face any situation. The Spirit is active in you. Number three, the Spirit knows everything you think, feel, and do. This can be a scary thought. The fact that God lives inside you means He has access to every part of you. Your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, your dreams, your imagination, your motives, and your will. He knows when you're telling the truth. He knows when you're fudging the details or outright lying. But while the scariness of that thought ought to motivate us to obey God and avoid sin, it can also be a massively comforting thought. He knows me better than even my wife knows me, and he still wants to live with me. He knows my strangest quirks, my deepest hurts, my most wicked thoughts, my most secret sins, and yet, and yet, he still loves me and wants to live with me and in me. The Spirit knows everything you think, feel, and do, and that's a good thing. Number four, the Spirit goes wherever you go. This thought, too, can be a scary one. If you find yourself in places, you might be ashamed for other people to know about. But if you remember this fact, it can help you recall your calling as an ambassador. You represent Jesus everywhere you go. The Spirit living within you authorizes you to speak on His behalf, to speak His Word to other people. The Spirit goes wherever you go. Number five, the Spirit experiences the painful circumstances of your life with you. When you experience something really painful, sometimes it's hard to tell other people about it, isn't it? That's partly true because the people you're telling really don't know what it feels like. Even if they've had a similar experience, it isn't exactly the same. When a man's father dies, he can share his feelings with another man whose father has died, but the pain is not equal between them. It's very hard to honestly say to anyone, I know what you're going through, and yet we say it all the time. We're trying to provide comfort, and sometimes it helps significantly. 
but we might find our communion with God sweetened, our faith in Him deepened, when we remember that the Spirit is a person living in us. He's grievable. He is upset when we sin. But I think we can also infer that He is sad when we are sad. So we have someone living inside of us, the King of the universe, who is present in all of our circumstances, and He always feels the right emotions in response to every circumstance. And he feels them as deeply as only God can. The Spirit experiences the painful circumstances of your life with you. Number six, the Spirit prays for you. It's strange to think of God praying to God, but because the one true God exists as three persons... It actually makes good sense. We read about Jesus praying for us in John 17, and we read about the Spirit praying for us in Romans 8. Let's face it, there are times in our life when we have no idea what God is up to, and we have no idea what to pray for. Or there are times in our life when the suffering is so intense, pressure is so heavy, that we can't even verbalize words to ask God to intervene. We're so broken and crushed and hurting. What you need to know in those moments is that there's somebody praying for you. Not a human being. That's less important. Not a bad thing, but less important. You need to know that in those moments, the very Spirit of God is praying for you. Guaranteed. Every time. All the time. We can be tempted to lose hope. Romans 8, 26, and 27 upholds and strengthens our hope. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we confess to God our inability when we don't know what to pray, and we can be certain that in that moment, the Spirit is praying, asking God for exactly what most needs to be done. The Spirit always prays according to God's will, even though we don't. And the Father always grants the Spirit's requests. The Spirit prays for you. Finally, number seven, the Spirit gives you assurance in your relationship with God. Have you ever doubted whether or not your parents loved you? How about your boyfriend or your spouse? That can be one of the most dreadful feelings we experience. We want security in our relationships, and our relationship with God is no different. In addition to God having a perfect track record of faithfulness, unlike everybody else, and we can all see that perfect track record as we read the Bible... So that when Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, in Matthew 28, 20, and when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, in Hebrews 13, 5, we can know He's going to come through. And even beyond that, the Spirit who lives inside of us actually conveys to our inner being, reminding us that we are God's children. There's a bit of mystery here. 
For most of us have times when we feel very unsure, very insecure in our relationship with God. And those who claim that they don't are probably lying. Um, we, our feelings are unstable and often out of line with the truth. And most of us, if not all of us, have indeed felt that way at times. And so when we sin, for example, when we sin, we can begin fearfully to ask ourselves the question, does God stand for me as my father or does he stand against me as my judge? And the mystery is that the Spirit chooses when and how to provide us with the feelings of assurance. He doesn't do it 100% of the time. We'd like to have those feelings all the time, at least I would, but in his sovereign freedom and his wonderful wisdom, he chooses to communicate that assurance to us only at certain times. But I think that remembering that he's present inside us to do this very thing can help us to seek out that assurance, to ask for it, and perhaps even to experience it more and more. But I also don't think that this assurance is merely a subjective reality or a subjective feeling. Jesus says in John 15, 26, that the Spirit does this by bearing witness about Jesus. And in John 16, 14, he says that the Spirit does this by glorifying Jesus. This is the Spirit's primary job, folks, to point to Jesus. That's his main function. So when we experience doubts, when we are feeling unsure about our relationship with God for whatever reason, our responsibility, what we need to do in that moment is to look again at Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, and the Holy Spirit, God in us, who is the Spirit of Christ, will help us see his glory in such a way that we are changed and assured and confident. The Spirit gives you assurance in your relationship with the Lord. So those are just seven ways that the Spirit living in us makes a difference in our lives. There are probably others. God dwelt with His people in a tabernacle, and His presence made a difference in their lives too. But God coming to live in a tent always pointed forward to His coming to live as a man, Jesus Christ. And then to his coming to live in his people. Before we conclude, let me read a summary of uh, commentator Philip Ryken of how the book of Exodus points forward to Jesus. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation, the mediator who goes for us before God. Jesus is the lamb of our Passover, the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our way out of Egypt the Deliverer who baptizes us in the sea of His grace. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness, the Provider who gives us what we need for daily life. Jesus is our voice from the mountain, declaring His law for our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning, through whom we offer praise up to God. Jesus is the light on our lampstand, the source of our life and light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us at the altar of incense. And Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. The great God of the Exodus has saved us in Jesus Christ. As we come to the end of Exodus, we see as well that Jesus is the glory in the tabernacle. The presence of Yahweh in the tabernacle was great. Emmanuel, 
God with us. The presence of Jesus on earth was greater still. Emmanuel, God with us as one of us. The presence of the Holy Spirit in Christians is greater still. God in us. But there's still more to come. Today we stand waiting for an even greater experience of God's presence. Emmanuel was great. The Spirit in us is even greater. But we look forward to the eternal day when God will be both in us and with us, with no hindrances because of our sinfulness and a fallen world. What could be better than the Holy Spirit of God living inside His people? Experiencing the presence of God in the New Jerusalem. Turn with me to Revelation 21. We won't take the time to read the entire chapter. Let's, let, let's look at some of these beautiful verses. And I just, can I take a moment to just ask the Lord to impress the significance of this vision to us in these final couple of moments? Father, would you indeed illuminate us as we look at this vision in your word? We want to be not only impressed, but radically changed by this vision of hope that's given to us. Give us eyes to see now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. So Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See through John's eyes a new heaven and a new earth. Today we argue about the age of the earth. How silly. We've got a brand new one coming. Who cares how old this one is? This world has an expiration date known only to God, not to the Mayans or any other human being. I say out with the old and in with the new. It will come at just the right time, but we pray, let it come soon. John sees the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven down to the new earth, and it's more beautiful than any bride walking down the aisle on her wedding day. The announcement from the throne lets us know that this is Emmanuel. God with us. The dwelling place of God is with man. John gets to see and hear what the tabernacle always pointed toward. And it's what the Mosaic Covenant always pointed toward as well. He will be their God and they shall be His people. Look down at verses 9 to 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying... Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The angel tells John he's going to show him the Lamb's wife, and then John sees the New Jerusalem again. What do you imagine John was thinking? Hey, wait a minute. I've already seen this. I thought you said you were going to show me the Lamb's wife, not the Lamb's city. But he is showing them the Lamb's wife. The bride is the city. The New Jerusalem is God's place, God's city. The Lamb's wife is God's people. But the people make up the city. A city is not simply a geographical area. A city is its population, its people. And here we see God's people and God's place merge so intimately that they cannot be conceptualized separately. God lives with his people in his city, but his city is his people. So God lives in his people and with his people. Finally, look down at verses 22 and 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. During Israel's history, God came to live with them first in the tabernacle, but eventually the tabernacle was replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. When the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC, the people were devastated. They were being judged for their sin, and there was great uncertainty over how God would dwell with them without the temple. When the temple was rebuilt, hope returned, but some of the people recognized how insignificant the rebuilt temple was in comparison with the original. That second temple was eventually expanded and beautified by Herod the Great. But was the glory of God living in that temple? Jesus did a great deal of ministry in the temple in Jerusalem, but he also publicly, prophetically, and powerfully denounced the temple. But the Jewish leadership had turned the place where people could meet with God to a place where villains scheme and plot. Jesus referred to himself as the temple, and he taught that people who wanted to meet with God must come to him. As the temple replaced the tabernacle, it seems that Jesus, during his ministry, replaced the temple. But after he rose from the dead, after the temple of his body was rebuilt, as he said it would be, he promised that the Spirit would come to live in his disciples. And so he established his followers as the new temple. God's presence will never again be limited to a building. On the new earth, no temple will be required or desired. Even the heavenly temple that is mentioned several times in Revelation doesn't come down with the new Jerusalem. God is with us, God is in us, and God is for us forever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for coming to live among us in the person of your Son. Thank you for coming to indwell us in the person of your Spirit. That you would dwell with sinful people is a marvel all its own. But when we personalize it and we think that you would come to dwell in me, knowing the sin that I commit, knowing the person that I have been, the marvel deepens. Would you help us all to move in that direction where we know our sinfulness 
we remind ourselves that we are indeed the chief of sinners, each of us, knowing our own sin better than we know anyone else's. But don't despair. Help us to find the joy and the confidence in the truth that in spite of our sin, you have overcome it. In spite of our sin, you have come to dwell with us. You have broken down all of the obstacles that we put up to living with you. Thank you for breaking down these things in us and around us. Nothing can stop you. Thank you for living in us to change us, to make us more like your son. We look forward to the completion of that great project. And we pray that you would give us patience and endurance and indeed confidence and assurance until that day when we see our Savior face to face and we see the new Jerusalem with our own eyes, resurrected eyes, eyes that won't need glasses or contacts or surgery to repair them. Thank you, Father, for these great promises. Thank you for this season where we remind ourselves of how it was all accomplished in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.